All right, so I got one more shot at it. One more shot at Christmas. Try to get you bah humbug people loosened up. Can you imagine that me talking about getting people loosened up? That's it's laughable, isn't it? All right, so we're gonna we're gonna call this this morning dealing with Herod, and uh, obviously it's a it's a relevant. Um, subject for us, uh, the day and age in which we live. Uh, I didn't know that Maxine was going to be here this morning, but Maxine was here on the first Sunday of Advent, and she told me a story about Charlie. She said it was Christmas time, and she came home, and under their Christmas tree, they have a they used to have like a nativity set which included wise men. We didn't set our nativity set up this year, but we have. You know, we have, uh, what is it, two can camels and three wise men. And Maxine just glanced at it, and she saw that someone had moved, someone had moved the wise men further back. Was it under the Christmas tree or away from the nativity set? And so uh, Maxine moved them back up because she wants to have a proper nativity set. And... She came home another time, I think the story was, and she noticed that they'd been moved back. And so she said, Charlie, have you been playing with the wise men? <laughs> Did you move the wise men? And Charlie said, the wise men weren't at the manger. So we put a little distance between the wise men and the manger, because the wise men come later. Well, you might have noticed that in uh, so in in our nativity scene, we have we don't have them in the manger; we have them on the outside, and that kind of denotes that there's a separation of time. But in the passage that we've read here, before the Holy Family goes uh, to Egypt. Um, that the wise men are visiting um, Jesus, who is now described not as a baby. If you look in, um, if you look back at the the text now the, in the first chapter of Matthew, verse eighteen. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, but in the the passage that we read this morning. Jesus is referred to as a child. And the ancient languages had um, Hebrew specifically as five or six different words that out describe a person from the time they're a baby up until in, into their mid-twenties. So the word that is used for Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 that isn't translated for us the child, the Magi come to the house where the child Jesus was. It it means that it's not a he's not a baby now, he's older. So the idea is, is that Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth, they're in a house, Jesus is older, and the Magi show up. Of course, the new atheists want to tell us that this 
you know, the chronology doesn't work out. You can't, you can't harmonize the different gospel accounts. But there is a, there is a sufficient explanation um, for all of this. So, the first verse, if you look at that with me, the first verse of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So, Frederick Dale Bruner says, in the opening verse, all three of the main characters of the chapter are introduced in the opening verse. So, this chapter 2 has three main characters. Of course, um, we have Jesus, we have the Magi or the wise men. Magi, that's the word that we get magician from. The Magi, and then we have uh, Herod. In this case, it, it, it is Herod the Great. There are several Herods uh, in the scripture. You run into a Herod um, again in, in the book of Acts. Uh, that's, uh, those are his sons. But Herod the Great was an Idumean, which means that he was a descendant of Esau. And they were an Edomite. They were uh, traditionally, they were regarded as enemies. Because if you go back in, in the Old Testament text, when um, when they're trying to make their way into the promised land, uh, the Idumeans do not allow the Israelites a free passage. And so that was, a, that was like the Hatfield and McCoy type thing. We don't often understand how it is. You know, the 12 tribes of Israel, they all started out as brothers. Have you ever been in a big family and they got in a fight? It's brutal, isn't it? And blood is thicker than water, so you don't want to get in the middle of the family feud because then they all turn on you, right? But we often wonder, why are there so many warring factions in the Middle East? It's because it goes back generations, thousands of years, uh, conflicts that have never been totally resolved. So Herod the Great was viewed as a compromise king. It was a political solution. He understood the Jewish system of worship and he knew his Bible, if we can, we can say it that way. But he was a corrupt politician. And he has with him his kind of evangelical cohort in, you can see where I'm going with this, he has his uh, evangelical cohort in the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes were the intelligentsia. They were the ones, now they were called scribes, uh, because not everybody could read or write. In fact, most people could, couldn't read or write. And so if you, if you received a letter or a contract, they were, scribes were kind of like lawyers. You took it to a scribe, and then he would charge you a fee, and then he would 
read it to you, explain it to you, write something in return. Uh, the Pharisees were the creme de la creme as far as the religious observance of Judaism was concerned. They were, if anybody was going to heaven, if anybody was going to satisfy the, uh, a holy and righteous God, the people felt that it was the Pharisees. Right? Two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, the one was a Pharisee. What was he doing? He's praying on the street corner. Dun, da, da, da. Jesus said sometimes the Pharisees, they make, they make a great display of their piety. Right? Imagine. Imagine before Kerry goes into work at Boeing, while everybody else is parking their car, um, Kerry stands out there and says, Oh God Almighty, I am your faithful servant, Kerry. I worship the only one true and living God, Jesus Christ. And everybody going by would be like, <laughs> call security. Uh, we don't often see a display like that, but, but Israel was a, uh, ostensibly, it was a theocracy, but it really wasn't because the people, the people weren't happy. We wouldn't be happy if God was our king either. They, they wanted a king like other nations. It grieves Samuel. Samuel complains to it about uh, God to God about it, and God says to Samuel, "This this isn't your fault." So the people the people wanted a king. So there was this kind of strange mixture. We still have it. Let's say in in the country of Great Britain, where the queen, in, in our case now the queen. Uh, but sometimes the king is regarded as God's regent. Queen Elizabeth is the head of the Church of England. So there's this mixture of religion and statehood, which is a little bit foreign to us because America is a little bit different. We're a democratic republic. And um, because we have this wall of separation between church and the state, we figured it was a good thing to build that wall. Maybe people would stop killing each other over religion. So he, here we have this, this cast of characters, um, three, three main characters that Matthew tells us about in the very first verse. Jesus, of course, Herod, and the Magi. Listen to, uh, if you let me quote from Bruner for just a little bit. So the big initial themes of Matthew chapter 2 then are people coming to the Christ child with worship in their hearts. That's the Magi, right? And people coming to the Christ child with what? Murder on their minds. Uh, he says that's Herod and his group. So look a little bit further beyond where we stop reading. Look at verse 13. Now when they, they, meaning the Magi, had departed, church was over. Behold, an angel of the Lord. It's interesting about the Magi too, is that a star leads them to Jesus, right? Eventually. But they go to Jerusalem, and what nature has started in its revelation with the rising star, then they inquire, then they make an inquiry as to what, whether the scripture has anything to say about it. 
So always uh, Calvin says that God has, God has two books. Uh, the first book is nature, right? How many times have we uh, been, when Christy and I were at the Grand Canyon, I think maybe for five minutes we just stood there with our mouth open. Just so you can't, it's hard, hard to believe that. So what nature begins in the first book, then God finishes. We would, let, let's say for example, nature doesn't really reveal to us any, uh, the ins and outs of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We rely on the revelation that comes to us in, in Holy Scripture for that. So what nature begins, Scripture more fully fleshes out. So this is what happens. Church is over. Uh, the Magi have a dream. They decide this is how they're going to deal with Herod. God decides this is how you deal with Herod. Uh, go, go home a different way. Behold, because he, he had made the request very um, religiously, I'm sure. Well, when you find out where the child is, please let me know because I want to come and worship the child too because... Because I'm a God-fearing believer too. Well, they knew he was a... Don't fill in the blank. I shouldn't have paused there. They knew he, they knew, they knew he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? They weren't disrespectful to him. Um, they were just like, well, you are who you are. And, and like the apostles, uh, we would rather obey God than... Than men. So they departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, This is verse 13 Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Now that's like if, if uh, Russia has been our uh, traditional enemy, right? Communism. That would be like, you know, if for us, if Russia was like where Mexico was, that would be like God saying, um, y'all head over to Russia. And we'd be saying, there was a strict prohibition in the Old Testament not to go to Egypt. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, because that's, that was Egypt's way of doing business on, on the world scene. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will depend on the name of the Lord our God. Now, I might as well get right to where I'm going with this. Then, then I'll get there a few more times. And we'll all dance around. And then you can leave happier mad. The thing that concerns me about where we are in this nation right now is that it's, it seems to me that I discern in the professing people of God an evident lack of trust in God. Part of uh, the New Testament reading in the lectionary this morning is Ephesians chapter 6. And Ephesians chapter 6 lets us know in no uncertain terms, which doesn't make a lot of sense grammatically, but in certain terms, it, it tells us 
that we do not wrestle against what? Say it with me. Flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against principalities. Dark spiritual forces in high places. So, I think really what is going on for, for us in, in the West is that we are experiencing this sifting process that, you know, cream rises to the top. I think in the sifting process, the people who really trust God are, are going to be differentiated from just people who said they trusted in God. And listen, no one, none of us should welcome this sifting process. Peter tells us, I think it's in the book of 2 Peter, that judgment will begin where? At the house of God. We're, we're worried about all those people who are hypocrites and, you know, they only come to church on Easter and Sunday. Uh, when God begins to do this sifting, judging process, guess where it's going to start? It's going to start with us. And... We won't have, if we're properly attentive to what God is calling us to, you, you'll have your hands, I'll have my hands filled with dealing with myself, never mind dealing with anybody else. You're wandering on me now. I can see you, your eyes are getting glazed over. You're like, maybe I didn't want to hear this this morning. It's part of the reason why I'm a Calvinist, because there is a grain to life. You know, and those of you who work with wood, you can run your hand across a piece of wood one way, and it's smooth. You run it the other way, and you're liable to get a splinter. There seems to be a grain in life. There seems to be smooth people, and there seems to be splintery people. <laughs> there seems to be people who approach, when they approach the Christ child, they have worship in their hearts. And there seems to be another group, when they approach the Christ child, they've got murder on their mind. Now, I don't, I can't discern what is in another person's heart. I just know that from the reading of Scripture, right, there are goat, there, there are sheep. They're, they're goats and sheep. There are the, the righteous and the wicked. There are those who are on Jesus' left hand. There are those who are on Jesus' right hand. Maybe it's too simplistic. Maybe it's not theologically sophisticated. But I've come to the conclusion that every person, whoever lives, is in one of those two groups. I don't have the ability, and thank God I don't. Aren't you glad that I'm not the judge of all the earth? Because I'd either be letting everybody in, and, and then Reg would come to me, you know, saying, I've been, I've been living next door to Hitler for three million years now. Can't you find another place for me to live? I've put a request in. God has, in fact, 
delivered or given to Jesus all judgment. So we know that the judge of all the earth is the most merciful person who ever ever lived. I can't pass judgment on another person because even, you know, it was somewhat disappointing about the church shooting that took place last week where the man who had to, had to take the shooter out with one shot, if you saw the video, it's just, I mean, six seconds and it was three people were dead. He said, and of course, I don't know what I would say if I was him. I might say something way worse. But he said, I didn't, I didn't kill another human being. I killed evil. You see, that, that's an uncharacteristically non-Christian thing to say because we as Christians believe that every person, no matter how bad they are, no matter what evil they do, that every person is created in the image of God. Now, does that mean that there are, e- there are no evil people? No. Because of the fall, we have this creation of two categories. Though. We have people who are either justified uh, with God or people who are not justified with God. So, was it an evil act? Yes. You know, I explain it this way. When I was a kid, I used to... You don't see them now. Buffalo nickels. Remember those? Buffalo nickels? Usually when you found a buffalo nickel, you had sometimes a hard time even telling it was a buffalo nickel because it had been around. You just think of the thousand, millions of hands that that nickel went through for it to be defaced that way. But you can still make out the image. And so Christians have always believed that no matter how to face the image of a particular person, there is still within that person the image of God. They were created in the image of God. Now, now that's difficult for us to reconcile, but we're not the judge. We, I, I don't, I may want to sometimes say, yep, Kerry Goyce, he's got murder on his mind. He's in that group over there. And we find that a lot of times with Christian people, we hear this kind of judgmentalism all the time. You know what? We We hear a lot of things come out of the mouths of ostensibly professing Christians that are shocking. And one thing I would like to caution us as a covenant community, just a small group, frankly, I would never tell you uh, who you should vote for, how you should vote, anything. That's between you, your conscience, and God Almighty. Every, per- every person has to come to those choices and decisions themselves. But I I would say this, I would caution us in this. Let's not promote our particular viewpoint by lies or falsehood. And so that means like if if you're gonna if I'm gonna post a link on Facebook or if you're gonna post 
Oh, now we're down where the rubber meets the road right now. And I know that that link is not absolutely true, but it supports a position that I want to promote. You see, first of all, I am not, first of all, I'm not a citizen of America. First of all, my citizenship is in heaven. My loyalty is to another king. Hello. And it certainly isn't here. Now, already I, I hear people, your minds are going. I mean, it's a cacophony of noise right now. You're saying to yourself, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but what about Hillary? <laughs> you know, this is, you know, or what, what could we do? Who could we vote for? We couldn't vote for the Democratic. And I, I hear all that. That's, this is the dilemma that we are in right now. And each one of us is going to, have, going to have to really do our homework. The, th the thing about it is, this has the potential to eviscerate Christian witness in our country. And you'll see that it's never... Worse than when you get two Christians on social media that are, you're like, well, if they were in person, you'd have to pull them off each other because they'd be cutting each other's throats. I think it happens because we may be dealing with people who are church members, but they're not, they've not been converted by the, transformed by the Holy Spirit. They are subscribing to a certain amount of cultural Christianity. But they don't understand, they don't follow the Jesus of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount that says, love your enemies and pray for them that despitefully use you. What do you mean pray for them that despitefully use me? I want to kill them. I want to throttle them. I want to beat him down in an argument. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to touch you. I, I violated the 11th command. Do not touch my people. <laughs> so it, it has, here, here is where we can see the dark forces, those principalities in high places that are at work to divide the body of Christ. And I believe that the true body of Christ is indivisible. So Herod, he had the trappings of uh, religious identity. He certainly had the right crowd around him. But as Bruner said, he had murder on his mind. All right, now, Look, another quote, and then I'll be finished. In the language of Christian doctrine, then, Bruner goes on to say, Matthew chapter 2 shows us people coming to Jesus either in faith, the Magi, or in rebellion. So here, here it is again. We have these, these two groups. Respectively, 
Those who are coming in faith are under God's mercy, and those who are coming in rebellion are under God's judgment. The quiet sub-theme of the entire chapter is the representative child, the new Israel, representing in his outward weakness the presence of God's grace under the suffering of human sin, and so illustrating in his life what we can call God's good faith. So look at this. Here, to sum up then, the Magi represent humanity under the power of grace. King Herod represents humanity under the power of sin. Who's the third player? The child, a new Israel, who is the mercied one, the judged one, the faithful one. Now, that is who, as Christians, here, our depth of devotion to the mercied one is to be such that if we were called to make a choice between Herod and Jesus, we would choose we would choose Jesus. I love this statement by Bruner. History cannot overwhelm the evangelist. Think of the drama in the story. So the incredible theological precision of the incarnation. Uh, it's like, it, remember when, of course, Dwayne Lewis felt that it never happened, when man landed on the moon. One small step for man, a giant leap for humankind. Was that it? Remember that? And if, if, you, if you, because that was 50 years ago, last year, 2019, and landed on the moon in 1969, unless it was all faked and it was just a, a set somewhere in Hollywood. But if it actually happened, and I do believe that it did, if you if watch any of the documentaries, how many watch that movie, um, the ladies who actually did the math on it? I forget the name of the movie, but there were three ladies, pardon me, hidden figures. And, and, they were doing calculations with like slide rules because the IBM guys couldn't get their computer if you watch that, that movie. The intense accuracy, that speed and angle to actually slingshot men to the moon, have them land on the moon and, then and get them back. The incarnation was even more precise than that. So here, God has precisely placed the baby Jesus in the manger, and now what do we have? We have a political figure is out to kill him. And the same theological precision in the face of evil is, is needed. God has to orchestrate Magi. He has to give dreams to people. He has to send his son down into Egypt, which is... Entirely counterintuitive. If you are a righteous person, you would never go to Egypt. You, you would die in Jerusalem. But Bruner says, history cannot overwhelm the evangelist. Now think about that in our present context, what's going on in our country and around the world. Who knows what's going to happen? Next few hours, the next week, another month. We don't know. But we believe this to be true, that whatever, whatever path 
history takes, God has a way of orchestrating the events of mankind to his glory. His end will be achieved. You see it on Facebook sometimes. Two people get to argue, and I, you know, I... I've had my moments on Facebook, I suppose. Christy, Christy cautions me. She says you need to be... She gets a hold of my hands, looks in my eyes, and says, Alan, 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 you could do so much good on Facebook. I said, I have the gift of sarcasm. It's the 10th gift of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul also had the gift of sarcasm. But do we, re- do we really believe this? That our loyalty is not in earthly figures or earthly systems, but we believe in a kingdom that is not yet. It's here, but not quite yet. We've heard the good news. You know, here, me being stupid up here, singing joy to the world and go tell it on the mountain. It is good news. Because we used to sing that song, Oh my brother, are you ready for the call? To crown your, to crown your Savior, King and Lord of all, the kingdoms of this world shall soon before him fall. We shall see the king when he comes. History cannot overwhelm. In this case, he's talking about the evangelist Matthew. Not even the most evil history. You think of the Holocaust. If if that didn't have the ability, you think of the the, the recent anti-Semitic events that have taken place in our country. If the Holocaust didn't have the ability to squeeze the faith of the Jews dead, there's nothing that can. History cannot overwhelm the evangelists, not even the most evil history. In everything tragic that, read this with me, whether you believe it or not, in everything tragic that happens, including most particularly the cross, what does Matthew see? He sees the sovereignty the sovereignty of God. We heard it in the call uh, to worship this morning. Look, look at it with me. We'll close with this Psalm 146, verses 3 through 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Think of this, the early church in the face of Caesar. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So earthly leaders will come and go. But the kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. I talk with my sister about this all the time. She's a she, she really likes uh, Donald Trump, which is strange because my, my sister was always like, 
a liberal, you know, she voted for, who was that back in the day, McGovern? <laughs> and I say to her, Jody, I said, what, what happened? What, what the, well, I'm just sick of all these people. Well, what people are you talking about? I'm sick of all these people coming across the border. Oh, and what about our kids and our grandchildren? And, and I'm thinking to myself, Rick's been there for the conversation, and I'm thinking to myself, our hope for our kids and grandchildren was never in, in a country or a, an earthly prince. We, we all know that if our children and our grandchildren aren't members of the kingdom of God, there is no hope outside of that. See, and that, because I didn't get a good hearty amen there, betrays the fact that we have put more trust in princes, in earthly princes, than we do in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is not worth meanly offending people and destroying the visible fabric of the body of Christ over something that according to that scripture, on the day that person dies, their plans get buried with them. Do we really believe that God is in control? Doesn't mean that we don't have any obligation to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to vote the right way as much as, as is within us, as we can possibly discern. I'm not saying that we can just abandon all social responsibility. What I am saying is when all is said and done, when the day comes to an end and you put your head down on the pillow, have what I said, have what I've spoken, have what I events, the conversations that I had, do they reflect the fact that I believe I have faith in this Jesus who is a baby, this Jesus who is now a child, this Jesus tomorrow who will be baptized? Do I really believe that in the end, his kingdom rules and reigns? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father that you once again have given us an opportunity to confess here in this covenant community our loyalty to you. We know that you are faithful to us. We heard it in the scripture this morning, the prophet Jeremiah, all the times that God was upset with Israel, even disciplined them, spoke to them harshly, that he could not give up on that relationship. Israel, Ephraim is my son. Thank you, Father, that you are overwhelmingly committed to the covenant of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you will give us the same kind of allegiance to your prince, to your son, Jesus Christ, to the same degree. We ask it in Jesus' name.